Hi, this is Nir Isaacovich from the Applied Ethics Center at UMass Boston. This is our podcast series, and uh, my guest today is my colleague and very good friend, Ken Greenberg. Hi, Ken. Hi, yeah, Nir. Uh, I'll say a few uh, words about Ken, and, um, and then we'll move to our discussion. Ken is a distinguished professor of history at Suffolk University in Boston. He's one of our greatest experts uh, on uh, slavery and the antebellum South and uh, questions of uh, honor and how they relate to slavery. He's the author of uh, many important works, one classic, which is a classic for what it has in it and also a great classic for its best title ever. And it's called Honor and Slavery, Lies, Duels, Noses, Masks, Dressing as a Woman, Gifts, Strangers, Humanitarianism, Death, Slave Rebellions, The Pro-Slavery Argument, Baseball, Hunting, and Gabbling in the Old South. Did I leave anything out? You did not. <laughs> Neither yeah. did I. Yeah, I know. I know. How did you come up with that? That's the best title. It really is. <laughs> Actually, it's the contents of what I do. And I thought that it would be intriguing to people to figure out or to, to see how I was able to connect all these things into a coherent book. And and you do, and it's an, amazing, it's an amazing book. Some other books uh, Ken wrote, Nat Turner, The Slave Rebellion in History and Memory, The Confessions of Nat Turner, uh, Masters and Statesmen, which is an older book from 85, The Political Culture of American Slavery, and Ken also co-produced and wrote a documentary, a PBS documentary on Nat Turner called Nat Turner, A Troublesome uh, Property. Um, so Ken, thank you so much for making some time to to talk to me. Well, it's a pleasure to be here with my distinguished colleague Nir Isakovitz. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, so Ken, um, we've talked a lot about uh, the role of uh, honor uh, in the antebellum uh, South and how it was uh, uh, connected with uh, slavery. Um, can you can you, can you say a little bit about how you how you became interested in this? So um, I guess my my first interest I was working on the, in the Nat Turner slave rebellion. He was the leader of what what was uh, probably the most important slave rebellion in American history, and uh, I noticed that you know he he was an object of particular hatred among white Southerners as you would as you would expect. He. Mm-hmm. Uh, led a rebellion that killed 55 white people, men, women, and children, and was vilified by white Southerners. And then when they executed him and they treated his body, uh, you know, that that sort of stuck out. It's an example of the extreme hatred that they had towards him. And, you know, if you visit the town where the rebellion happened today, you can't visit his grave site. Uh, What happened was his body was dissected, and if you if you get to know people down there, there are always rumors that there are body parts. Hmm. Even all these years later, 170 years later or so, uh, rumors of body parts somehow floating around. I've never I've never actually saw any. They're mostly rumors, I believe, but nonetheless, it's pretty wow. disturbing. So this is a tremendous disrespect for the human body, and it shows the hatred that they had. And then I, I was also uh, was. Uh, decided to pay some attention to how they treated other people's bodies. And as you might expect, for, uh, for political leaders, white Southern political leaders, there was a tremendous respect for the body, a regular burial, the kind of things you would normally expect. And then I looked at John Brown, and uh, I was, was struck by the interesting way in which they treated his body. Brown, of course, also led a slave rebellion, and uh, he was white. But nonetheless, he was deeply hated by Southerners, and they were both from the same state of Virginia, although they ran uh, later. And uh, for his body, he was hanged, and there are eyewitness accounts which talk about how nobly he died, how he didn't, his body didn't stir, didn't move. Uh, he sort of held his ground. He seemed to hurry the executioner on in the execution. And then after he was dead, there were some doctors who had to certify his death. They cut him down, the doctor stood around, and they said, he looks so good in death. And this is another sign of of a kind of respect they had, that his body looked so good that they said, and we can't, you know, we can't tell whether he's dead or alive or not. And so one guy says, well, let's cut off his head. And another doctor says, no, uh, they don't want to treat the body with disrespect. And so he 
they, they said, let's break for lunch and we'll come back after lunch and see if we can certify his death. And, and that's exactly what they did. And then in the end, you know, his body was given up and uh, the famous song, John Bounds' body lies moldering in, in the grave. Well, uh, Matt Turner's body doesn't lie moldering in the grave. So this trend of bodies began to fascinate me. And that was one of the entrees into my interest in, in the issue of honor, because it's clearly related to honor. Yeah. Uh, treat the dead body. It's just one of those things that, that's important to white Southerners. Huh. Huh. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And just gives, just gives the association of a direct line back to the world of the Iliad and the disrespect of the bodies or the respect of the bodies of, uh, of one's enemies. Um, so. Yes, you know, the, this, uh, the question of honor is one of the trickiest subjects because the word is used to mean many different things. I think if you took a modern audience, the audience listening to this that are not scholars and know much about the South or about the world of the Iliad, uh, they would just assume that when they heard the word honor, it means the same thing that they mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what I discovered was in the world of white Southerners who were, were obsessed with honor, it means something quite different. And that's basically what, what I wrote about is how different it was. It's like the way I described it, it's like looking at a foreign language. And what's tricky is it's a foreign language where all the words are in English. Hmm. In order to understand the meaning of the words, you have to do an active translation to figure out what they really meant by it. Hmm. And w- w- what does it mean for them? And so uh, here, here are some examples that are sort of startling. Well, first of all, the duel is one of those things that is gone from the world. And we have a hard trouble today imagining, you know, what, what could they possibly have in mind when they thought dueling was a good thing? I'll give you an example of something which uh, always is quite startling to come across. There's, there's thousands of examples of, of duels that occurred or almost duels that occurred leading, leading up to the duel as well, all, all over the South during the period before the Civil War. And here's one example. Uh, at the uh, South Carolina uh, College, um, there were two students. The students used to eat together, and there was a communal uh, uh, tables for students. And the custom was when the food was placed down, it was on a communal dish. And uh, the, the first student to grab it uh, would serve themselves, and they'd pass it around. And that seemed to mostly work fine. Mm-hmm. In this particular case, two students grabbed it at the exact same instant, and um, they uh, neither one let go. And as soon as the others at the table see that this is the situation, they stop talking. They know that this is not trivial. Something very serious is going on. I mean, very serious. And neither one lets go until finally, after a period of time passes, one lets go and says, I will see you later. And that's code word for they're going to meet each other in a duel. Now we're talking about risking your life, trying to kill somebody. They try to kill you. That's what the duel is is all about. And it's over who who uh, refuses to let go of the dish of trout. Moreover, unlike now, in fact, if my students began to act this way, I would say, don't be stupid. Why are you going to try to shoot each, at each other over this? What does that solve? And, uh, and uh, but but the professors at the college they became seconds. Everyone hmm. understood that there had to be a duel over this. You couldn't really get out of it. So for, for our listeners, I just just to clarify, seconds is the sort of duelers assistant that makes the arrangements and so on. Yeah, the seconds. Uh, you know, there, there's an elaborate ritual connected with this. So rather than the principals, the two people angry at each other, making all the arrangements and uh, doing that, the the job of the of the seconds is to actually work out the logistics. And the, the logistics are interesting because they must be equal between the two sides. Mm-hmm. In fact, this is a side point, but it's worth noting here. Uh, the most dangerous duels in terms of likelihood of death are, I think it's between, well, the most dangerous ones are between a good shot and a bad shot shot, but they're dangerous for both sides. It's not that the person who's a bad shot will have less of a chance because what you want to do is equalize the two. Mm. You do that typically is to shorten the distance. So Mm. a good shot and a bad shot, they might be 
two feet apart and mm-hmm. the pistols right up against each other's chests, and that could be a duel. If yeah. the really good shots, you could equalize it by having them 20 feet apart, and mm-hmm. the bit of death goes down under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. So, so the, there were certain things that the seconds needed to do, given what the duel was all about. They wanted equality uh, as part of the whole thing. Anyway, yeah. the point is that they engage in this enterprise, which you know we can't understand. Mm-hmm. Right? It leaves it left, left my uh, my jaw dropped basically to think of how could this really go on? And they took it seriously, and uh, and then you know you probe at this and you try to figure out well what really is going on. And what's going on is it's a conversation about who is master and who is slave, who is superior to the other. Both grab the dish of trout, and the one who lets go is going to concede that they've been sort of vested under those circumstances. And all the associations with that, the main one, which the ultimate one is being a slave. They live in a slave society. They know what that's all about, about being unequal that way. And so neither one can let go because it's not a conversation about trout. It's a conversation about who's master and who's slave. Mm -hmm. They resolve it is they go through the ritual and each one shows that they are fully equal to each other. That's Mm -hmm. why. In the duel itself, the, the between equals is is extremely important. Mm-hmm. But but also it's that uh, the, the duel is often misunderstood, right? The duel is not about trying to kill the other person. It's easy to think, well, two people are angry at each other, and you're so angry you want to kill the other person. That's mm-hmm. not the purpose of the duel. The purpose of the duel is to be shot at. Mm-hmm. That's what it's all about. Because when you're shot at, you show, you show that you are fearless in the face of death. You're willing to face death to prove that you're a man of honor and have all the qualities of honor. Death is at the center of it, all the willingness to face death. And mm-hmm. then being shot at demonstrates that. And the other side wants to do that as well. And then when they're done, when each is shot at the other, well, obviously, if they miss, uh, then the decisions have to be made. But remember, they're all leading towards a moment when everybody is satisfied that full equality has been reestablished. The duel started one side thought there was not full equality, or both sides ultimately thought that. And you need to have the duel to prove full equality. And full equality meant that they were the kind of men who were willing to die to preserve their honor by facing bullets. And if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the existence of slavery makes this preoccupation with dueling and more broadly with honor more prevalent than it would have been in parts of the country where slavery didn't. Yeah. Uh, so, so the question is, you know, what are the social circumstances which allow this kind of thing to happen, which ultimately give meaning to the whole operation living in a society and slavery is a good example of this. There is almost, almost every slave society. In fact, and I may even go further than that. Every slave society, they're obsessed with honor. The master class is obsessed with honor. Uh, you know, they, they may have different rituals connected with it, but honor is extremely important. And then they also define the enslaved person as someone who lacks honor. In fact, that's the central characteristic. If you want to try to make a definition of what enslavement is all about, there are many ways you can go about it. Obviously, it involves owning people and so forth. But the, the, the cultural heart of what, what enslavement is about is a society in which the master class denies that the enslaved people have honor. Uh, they have, you know, one, one sociologist has described it as social death, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why uh, if, for example, um, think about this, okay? If a master has a confrontation with an enslaved person, and the duel cannot result from that. They're not regarded as social equals. Right. We establish social equality. They're unequals, and therefore the master can just beat the enslaved person. That's perfectly consistent with being a man of honor. And it adds to this notion that it's a society where the, the, the dishonorable, where those without honor, are simply fundamentally different from those with honor. Mm-hmm. Honor, you're equal to everybody else with honor, and those who who don't have honor are simply separate. And it, 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 it actually works itself out in a million different ways um, in that society.
but part part of what you're saying is that as a result of slavery, the question of honor is always on the slave owner class's mind because there's always a class of honorless humans in full view in front of them on their, you know. That's right. So it's the social background to what makes honor have the meaning that it does. And therefore, it's no coincidence, just as you would expect, that uh, in a society where which once had slavery, you don't have slavery, honor in the sense I'm describing, and by the way, new senses emerge, new senses even exist at the same time, what I'm describing begins to die out. And therefore, dueling uh, dies out after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Social circumstances that gave it its meaning have ended and it becomes something else. Mm-hmm. So in the antebellum period, the South is really unique with this obsession with honor, like something very different is going on in the North? Uh, well, there is, um, uh, you know, the famous uh, Hamilton Bird duel, which occurs in the North, and that's in the early, very early 19th century. Right. We have dueling in the North, uh, and we have slavery in the North before the American Revolution. Right. And I think, you know, it, and then it occurs in the military too. The same circumstances which produce it in a slave society also give it life in the military as well. And so a lot of people who fought in the revolution also bring the practices back, whether they're Northerners and Southerners. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a neat thing where it suddenly ends at a particular moment. But we right. can see, looking back, that the Hamilton-Byrd duel is the beginning of the end of it for the North, and the North basically doesn't have it mm-hmm. uh, during most of the antebellum period. In fact, they look at the Southerners and think, what barbarians, you know, that seems absolutely crazy. You know, Benjamin Franklin was, uh, you know, uh, was someone who was skeptical of the duel from the very beginning. He, lived, he came from a world uh, which you know, uh, is the furthest thing from the world of the duel. And he sometimes writes about silly things about duels. You know, uh, he repeats an anecdote. There's an anecdote about, I think it's between two Frenchmen. I may have the details wrong, basically. But, uh, you know, one, one says to the other that basically he smells. Uh, mm-hmm. And he says, well, I'm insulted. Uh, uh, let's fight a duel over this. And then the guy who says that says, well, we could fight a duel over it, but if I shoot you and kill you, you'll still smell even worse than you did. <laughs> and if you kill Mill, it won't do anything. Me, it won't do anything about the smell. Franklin was interested in, you know, what does the duel solve exactly? He simply couldn't understand what they were. Why would they end up shooting each other? And that Northerners typically began to look at that. You know, there's the most famous. If I can just say this as an illustration of the same point the most famous North-South confrontation before the Civil War involving issues of honor, it's a confrontation in which Northerners couldn't understand Southerners. They were speaking English. Everybody was speaking English, but they were not speaking the same language uh, of honor here. And that's the famous confrontation between uh, Charles Sumner, United States Senator from Massachusetts in 1856, mm-hmm. and Preston Brooks, a, a congressman from South Carolina, at the same time. And uh, I don't know if you want to hear this amazing story. I do, of course. So uh, what happened was the circumstances leading up to it has to do with the, um, the clash over slavery politically in the territories. And the background is in Kansas was being organized as a territory. And uh, they, they were pro-slavery people who were flocking to Kansas who wanted to vote for a pro-slavery constitution so what they could apply for admission as a state, as a slave state. And then there were the anti-slavery people who also flooded to Kansas. And people began to shoot each other. And, uh, you know, Sumner was an abolitionist from Massachusetts. And he delivered a speech because he held the, the Southerners. He, he thought that they were terrible trying to spread slavery to the territories. And, uh, and so... Uh, uh, and then he, 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 he had all kinds of insults in this speech. It was a two-day speech. In fact, unlike modern rhetoric, you know, this lasted for about eight hours, this speech. He memorized the speech and uh, delivered it in the Senate chamber. And it included personal insults of the senator from South Carolina, who was not present. But his cousin was, uh, Preston Brooks was the cousin who was sitting in the gallery. 
And he felt the insult. Other Southerners felt the insults. They were general insults and personal insults as well. In the Southern mind, this was Sumner declaring his superiority. It's the furthest thing Sumner had in mind. I mean, he, he didn't think much of Southerners. On the other hand, he wasn't speaking the language of honor. But they were understanding it as the language of honor. And so Justin Brooks felt he had to do something to reassert the equality of, of his cousin, of himself, of Southerners in general, and to put Sumner back in his place. Now, if he challenged Sumner to a duel, which is the normal thing that would happen among men of honor, Sumner would have laughed at him and said, you guys are crazy, you're barbarians, why would, you, why would I ever fight a duel? It doesn't make any sense to me. So a duel is not a possibility. So what he has to do is treat him as if he's a slave. And, uh, and what he does is he decides he's going to take his cane, and when Sumner is not expecting it, he's going to whack Sumner over the head with a cane. And he describes this afterwards. He, he looks around for his opportunity. Sumner doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't even know he's being uh, uh, followed this way, but he tries to find a place outside the Capitol building to make the assault. There are, then there are women present. He doesn't want to do it in front of women. So finally he decides he's going to do it in the Senate chamber itself. And so he comes into the Senate chamber. Sumner is, when the session ends, the senators would often sit at their desks and, uh, uh, and do work. And Sumner was there sitting at his desk, which was bolted to the floor. And Preston Brooks comes up to him and says, you know, I've, I've come to essentially, uh, this is a paraphrase, but avenge the insult you've given to my cousin. And Sumner has no idea what he's talking about. And uh, he begins to whack him over the head with a cane. Not once, not twice, but scores of times. Sumner is bleeding profusely after the first few blows. He's confused. He begins to, he's a big man. He begins to pull up the desk and actually has enough strength to get up pull the whole desk up, and finally he falls forward and unconscious on the floor of the Senate. Other senators, especially the Southerners, but Northerners quickly catch on too, they see what's going on, and the Southerners pull people back. They say, you can't interfere with this. This is a matter of honor that's going on. Uh, Although the the risk wasn't present in the same kind of way that it is in a duel. If one guy has a cane and the other doesn't, it seems to challenge one of the premises of what it is that bestows on yes, but but remember the the premise of the duel had to be between social equals mm-hmm. and this of a man hitting someone with a cane is the premise of enslavement that's what slavery is about that's why masters can whip slaves if a slave if for example a slave can't insult a master you know the master doesn't say okay we have to fight a duel it doesn't do that just mm-hmm. says okay you get whipped now that's what's is doing. That's the message that's carrying forward, and that's the meaning in a slave society that all this has. So, so in a way, it's the other side of the coin of honor, which is inflicting humiliation. Exactly right. And it's why the existence of slavery in a society gives additional meanings, additional layers of meanings to the institution of, of honor. The two go hand in hand. And by that time, Northerners, you know, as bewildered as Sumner was in getting hit at first, he's also bewildered by what, where does this come from? You know, he can't even understand where it comes from exactly. Now, you know, they're they're aware of it. They're with Southerners all the time. So they have some vague idea, but they can't appreciate it and understand it as a useful and good thing. And Mm -hmm. see the difference between North and South in their reactions to this. In the North, of course, they're horrified. If you look at the Massachusetts newspapers of the time, this is an example of the barbarism of of Southerners, and it's the influence of slavery on turning white masters into barbarians. And they actually, uh, you know, Sumner was so severely hurt, he couldn't make it back to his chamber for years, for the Senate chamber for years. They left the seat empty as a reminder to everybody of what had happened there. In the South, the cane became a symbol of resistance circulated hmm. canes all over the South. And actually the, 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 the pieces of the broken cane of Preston Brooks became like uh, people would, you know, always wanted a piece of the true cross. It had that same quality of, it was sacred relics that people uh, wanted to have. If they yeah. Remember this great moment, white Southerners write about this as it's one of the great vindications they put Sumner in his place. And his place in their minds was as a slave. Hmm. So this this amazing episode 
brings to mind, you know, some of the deeper motivation that's involved here. Part of why, and I'm not sure that this is limited to the South, but part of why this preoccupation with honor in the South instrumentally makes sense is it looks like honor is the condition for being able to be politically effective for anybody there. And as I was, as I was reading about um, Hamilton's life, uh, I mean, he engaged in quite a few, you know, duels. We mainly hear about the famous one, but it, it seemed for him to be something of a habit. And the most generous explanation was he thought that it was somehow necessary for him to get the job done to have political credibility. Um, was yeah, actually, you can see this uh, at every level. You're absolutely right, Nir, uh, because uh, uh, if, you're, if you allow an insult to pass and you essentially admit that you're slave-like and have the qualities of a slave, of course, your co- political career is dead, but it's more than that. Your social life is dead. You mm-hmm. They're the kind of social death that enslaved people live with all the time. They weren't recognized as you know people in the sense of ability to have to have honor. That was extremely important. I'll give you a wonderful example of this. Andrew Jackson, who fought many duels and had other encounters during mm-hmm. the that could have led to a duel, but there's one point where he's just starting out his career, but he's established as a political figure uh, already, and I think it was the uh, 1806 or so, and there's somebody who comes to town in, he's in uh, Tennessee and uh, uh, gets into an altercation of some sort with Jackson. Now, Jackson, this man's a, a stranger to town, and Jackson is an established figure already. And, uh, the, and, and, and this man then challenges Jackson to a duel. Jackson has a choice. He could fight the duel. And the, agreeing to fight a duel is a great compliment to your opponent. Mm-hmm. That you're socially equal and uh, you're worth fighting a duel with. Yeah. Jackson, because he was known and the other guy was unknown, also had the ability to say, I'm not dueling with you. Who are you? What are your credentials? You know, I think you're not a gentleman, and therefore I'm not going to fight a duel with you. And the guy is in such danger at that point that he says, uh, and, and he justifies this after, he says, I had letters, I'll have letters of reference. In other words, he's applying to Jackson to fight a duel. That's how important it is because it's the end of his life, at least in his career at that moment. You can't allow that kind of thing to pass. And it could be, it's just as significant it's over something trivial like trout and grabbing a dish of trout than it is over something vitally important like a political issue or insult to someone, uh, you know, a woman or something like that. It's, uh, it doesn't matter what the issue is. The, the effect of it is the same. The most trivial confrontation, and this is something with people outside the culture of honor cannot understand mm-hmm. is to be so trivial. Mm. You smell uh, mm. isn't trivial at all. It's a battle over who's the master and who's the slave. Hmm. It's fascinating that the acceptance of dual is in fact a sort of act of recognition and that somebody can be rejected from a dual for a lack of social standing. Yes, in fact, there are, you know, occasionally there are codes of duels that are published. And mm-hmm. in the codes of dueling, the most famous one is, happens in, uh, by a South Carolinian in, I think it's 1838 or so. And it says that uh, you don't have to duel with a stranger. Mm-hmm. Stranger is, and that means an un- unknown in the social order. If you're not sure about their standing in the social order, don't duel. Have them prove themselves. Mm-hmm. So, Ken, let me ask you, um, except for uh, the ending of uh, slavery, um, what else is responsible for the retreat of this culture of honor? In some sense, the feeling of humiliation that we read about in the post-Civil War South suggests that it should have become entrenched even though slavery um, ended. So what, what happens, or is it primarily the end of slavery? Well, I, I believe it is the end of slavery that gives it its full meaning, but, you know, social change doesn't happen on a dime. Right. For it, it drips over. You have mm-hmm. that extend, and you have duels, you know, among uh, Europeans from the aristocratic class that used to engage in duels. They continue into the 20th century. Yeah. 
There's a duel I came across who happened in France, I think it was in the 60s or 70s, which was heavily photographed by paparazzi who knew it was going to happen, and it was with swords. Yeah. So, you know, it, they, they exist as holdovers in subcultures, and you can find it. You know, the closest thing we probably have to a duel might be uh, schoolyard fights. Hmm. You know, as, as you talk about it, then as you talk about the dynamics of accepting or rejecting a, a duel and that – as as you describe them about being primarily about the uh, credential standing and honor of the people participating rather than about the desire to actually kill each other, which most of the time they have nothing to do with. Maybe one social practice that reminds me more than anything of it that's a contemporary social practice is the political debate between um, candidates for office. It has zero to do with the sub- substance uh, of the actual uh, election that's taking place. It's a, in some way a attempt to establish some kind of charismatic credential on both sides. Occasionally somebody gets rejected from a debate if they're not a serious enough candidate or they don't have enough support and that's taken to be as a act of misrecognition or humiliation. It seems to have some echoes of the whole issue. Yeah, I think what you, you see are echoes there. There's no doubt about it. And uh, but without the full you know, culture behind it, after all, if it's a subgroup, uh, let's say it's say we talk about gangs or schoolyard fights for a second. Well, the teachers don't support that, and there's lots in the culture that will try yeah. to pick it up. That gives it a different quality. Wow. There's, uh, but then there's the debates that you mentioned. And, you know, there is this idea of social death, that somehow you could commit an act which gets you banished somehow in a group. Uh, you know, fraternities in universities have the same quality. You want to join, you want to be accepted as an equal, and uh, but they have the ability to ban you from it. That kind of a thing happens. So I think it's it's joining any group that has borders and whether you can be admitted or not um, huh. that exists in those pockets. But what's missing is the overlay of the whole culture, understanding what's going on uh, that way. But you're right. You can see it. There are echoes of this kind of thing everywhere. And usually it's not to the death. You know, the thing, the thing about, um, both about the slavery gave it meaning and then, the duel uh, is, it feeds into that meaning as well. One of the myths that, that, that masters had about enslaved people is that they were slaves because they feared death. Mm-hmm. Masters would tell themselves, I could never be a slave. Because all you have to do is stand up and say, I'd rather die than be a slave. Mm-hmm. In fact, read carefully um, uh, Frederick Douglass in his one of his many autobiographies, but actually he does this in several of them. Uh, Frederick Douglass, who was an escaped enslaved person, he describes the moment of what, which he considers his true liberation. And it's not when he actually escapes from enslavement. It's actually when he decides to stand up to a slave breaker, someone who he was given to, to sort of break his spirit. And he decides after he's beaten a great deal, that one day he's just going to stand up and fight the guy. Now, we don't know what the slave breaker thought of this, okay? He didn't think of Frederick Douglass as a social equal, but Douglass had in his mind some of the values of a culture of honor. And when he stood up and said, I can't take it anymore, I'm willing to die rather than be treated this way anymore, he himself, in his mind, was in a sense fighting a duel. And that meant a great deal to him. And he envisioned his liberation uh, from, from, from that moment. Uh, outside the context. Yeah. So wait, let me uh, turn off my phone here. No problem. Well, I couldn't turn it off. It might happen again. No problem. Okay. Um, I guess one question uh, that comes to mind beyond the yeah, go ahead. One question that comes to mind beyond the some contemporary echoes of this uh, preoccupation with honor that we uh, hear um, in our day, and it's a really interesting point that you make that it's just a faint echo when the cultural background uh, is lacking. Uh, 
So this became a bit of an anachronism for us. And you and I have talked about this many times uh, in the past. At the same time, there are cultures, part of whom we are at war with, that are obsessed with questions of um, honor and humiliation. And it seems like we don't know how the hell to think about it anymore. So, for example, if you look at ISIS propaganda, questions of humiliation, you know, creep up left and right. Some of the first videos that they produce prominently uh, feature discussions of the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the humiliation of the Arabs by the French and British uh, after World War I. And some of their main texts are essentially an argument that they are going to be the ones that will undo Arab humiliation and uh, emasculation uh, by Western powers. Um, and we're almost all of us in some collective sense like that Massachusetts senator um, that has no real sense what this is about and can't take it seriously. Well, I think, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you're the person who knows much more about ISIS uh, and, and about the culture that makes sense to them. But from what I could tell from what you, you've been saying, yeah, I think uh, they certainly have lots of elements uh, that resemble the honor that you see. What about having uh, the, the class of the dishonored built into the society? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. Um, yeah. I guess. I, I guess versions of it. Yeah. I, I guess a broader way of asking the same question is there's a fascinating history here. There's a fascinating way in which we absolutely have to learn about the culture of honor to understand, you know, our origins and how the sense of identity in the North and the South develops apart from that is there a sort of less historical reason for thinking about honor and contemporary politics um well what you're describing is clearly an example of something i want to point out one danger in this though which is that because of the way uh we uh uh, have sort of moved away from a culture of honor uh, and it exists only in pockets in the United States. There is a built-in tendency to think of this in hierarchical terms mm-hmm. so that, you know, we're more advanced than a society which still holds on to honor. Mm-hmm. And the danger, I think, in approaching honor that way, it doesn't show the kind of respect that you would need to have in order to really engage a culture which is quite different. So yeah. I think that's important, especially for the kind of uh, Middle Eastern uh, yeah. honor uh, that you have. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a dangerous way to, to do it. Yeah, I've, I've been reading, um, it's an interesting point. I've been reading uh, J.D. Vance's uh, memoir, A Hillbilly Elegy, about uh, him oh, yeah. growing up in uh, Appalachia. And actually, part of what he describes there is very much a contemporary uh, culture of honor. And between the lines, you can read, I think, something like um, the kind of point that you are making is that in some way, uh, part of the condescension to that culture has to do with them taking these emotive questions of honor uh, uh, so seriously. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting point. And I think... That is probably the biggest danger in using these concepts and taking them out of the context of the Old South, which was defeated in the war. We consider this a great victory, a step forward to eliminate uh, the institution of slavery, and then to suddenly bring those categories into a modern situation. Uh, and, and somehow, I think the thing to do is, in order to understand people, you may need these categories, but you need to knock away the baggage of hierarchy that's associated with those categories. Yeah. I mean, is your sense that it's less dead in the South than it is in the rest of the country? Uh, you know, some, yeah, I think there's echoes of it probably. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a nostalgia among some Southerners for the old Confederacy and that way of life uh, to the extent that you have extreme racism and, so the South, uh, it's the same sort of thing as a social death. You don't recognize the humanity of, uh, 
and the ability to have honor among people who are not part of your group. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think, you know, you have to keep your eyes out for that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Ken, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you uh, if you are willing to talk about it a little bit about the book you're writing now. I know you're writing a book on Nat Turner. And one thing that's always fascinated me uh, about the work you do is that you have to piece together a narrative uh, from evidence that's uh, sometimes a little bit incomplete, sometimes a lot incomplete. Could you, so could you say a little bit about the new book you're writing? And- yeah. So I, I think evidence is always incomplete and it's always frustrating to be a historian. But in the particular case of studying the institution of slavery, both masters and enslaved people in that institution, uh, is, is a puzzle beyond belief. So, uh, you know, after all, you think about something like in the case of Nat Turner, uh, there are only certain types of sources that we have. We basically, from, from, from most people who are in slavery, we don't have their voices directly in general. There are a few exceptions, someone like Frederick Douglass and people like him who have escaped from slavery and who write their life stories. You can have their unmediated voices enter. But mostly for people who are enslaved, enslaved they come through other people's voices. and. In the case of Nat Turner, he almost comes through uh, because after he was captured, he's unique among slave, uh, enslaved rebels uh, this way. He uh, gave a confession mm-hmm. uh, in his jail cell to a white lawyer, not his lawyer, but a white lawyer named Thomas Gray. And Gray, within a couple of weeks of Nat Turner's execution, published it as the Confessions of Nat Turner. And this has been a document which is 20 or 30 pages long, and it's an object of great fascination uh, for for people because the one question associated with it that everybody has to face who uses it is, okay, whose voice is it? Uh, You know, and how can you tell when you read it? Is this Nat Turner speaking? Because Gray tries to write it sometimes as if it's Nat Turner speaking, but of course it's Gray who's written all this down and edited it and had full control over the thing. And uh, so the question is, as you read it, and and Gregor even interjects interjects his own voice sometimes as his own voice as well. So it is the most complicated document you can possibly imagine. And uh, the first thing you got to face is, how do you sort through the Nat Turner's voice from from Thomas Gray's voice is one of the important things. Every other document, every other document about anybody else during this rebellion uh, does not come from an African-American voice who was there. Uh, this, the, there are trial records. Uh, the trial records, uh, so there are about 50 uh, enslaved people who were tried as a result of this. And trial records are not like modern trial records. So they're, uh, uh, they're usually a couple paragraphs, which is a court reporter of some sort who is uh, giving the essence of what someone is saying. Sometimes he, he tries to actually give the exact words. Sometimes it's the core. But they're basically very truncated things. And you have about 50 of these, and then you have different witnesses, you know, focusing sometimes on the same thing from different angles. Those trial records are the most complicated things to try to unpack, basically. Mm-hmm. And then you have uh, newspaper accounts, and this is before the era of, of modern reporting. You know, it's not as if anybody sends down a reporter to, to tell, to write about it in the newspaper and do investigative work. There's one or two editors who actually come to the scene or on the scene, but basically it's mostly the newspapers will have a letter sent to them uh, or they'll find a letter from someone who will describe it and those get into the newspapers and then those are republished in many places all over the place, but no one tries to give the comprehensive account of the whole thing. It's not like you rarely, you know, some a few, a, with a couple of exceptions, okay, but mostly you get little snippets of what's going on. Mm-hmm. So every newspaper account is troubling. I'll give you an example. Uh, if you look at the execution of Nat Turner, uh, there are two newspaper accounts of that execution. Mm-hmm. One describes it as a large crowd in attendance. Another describes it as hardly anybody was there. You know, what do you do with that? I mean, this is historians face this kind of thing all the time, but you have to sort of think through, well, how do you get these conflicting accounts um, and, uh, and how do you sort, sort through? Mm-hmm. So 
And then there is the, uh, the you know, if you go through to government documents of various sorts, there's um, the, uh, uh, the this county, and this is true all over the South, except for places where the records are burned. But in Southampton County, where the rebellion occurred, nothing got burned. So we've got almost all their their public records, property records, marriage records, death records, uh, uh, church records uh, as well, uh, uh, poll records. It's unbelievable how much information there is. But of course, that information comes not in the terms of a voice trying to tell you what they're doing. It comes in the form of these numbers and lists of people. And if you're an enslaved person, well, uh, you're out. You're, you're not in there at all. Slave, enslaved people don't have last names. So if you want to trace someone through who's an enslaved person over time, it's almost impossible to follow such a person through these kinds of records. Uh, and often they're not listed at all. You just give a master will have listed as in census records a certain number of people they own. Their name aren't even given. But if it is an enslaved person and the name is given, it's the first name. And first names repeat themselves on the same in fact, in the rebellion itself, there are maybe a half dozen people named Nat. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. What are, what are some of the, what's like the one thing that you've found so far in this foray into the rebellion that surprised you the most? Um, how, despite the fact that people have been going over this material, for 180 years or so, uh, that there are many, many new things to be discovered in it. I'm not ready to reveal any of the new things, but I'm astonished at the number of insights that I've had that no one has noticed before, you know, really careful attention. It takes time, you know, but uh, nonetheless, it's amazing how much there is. And so, you know, rarely in a, in, in a, you know, a well-researched topic like this, no one, you don't discover something new, a new source that no one's ever seen before. What you typically discover is an old source, which you look at with different eyes. Hmm. And uh, the, the main source of insight comes from being skeptical of everything that you read. Hmm. You know, they, these records are by and large kept by people who hate this, the enslaved uh, people that they're, they're writing about. Hmm that front and center you can suddenly doors begin to open do you do you um how easy or hard is it to see that hatred seep into the actual materials sometimes it's quite easy uh in the case of gray and this is interesting he's the person who took nat turner's confession and published the confession so yeah. you know he characterizes him in derogatory ways but gray has mixed in there words of admiration for Turner. Turner must have been remarkable because despite the fact that he's surrounded by people who hate him and this guy taking the confession hates him as well, uh, he's, the, the, the white lawyer is extremely impressed by his intelligence. And you can see even the things Turner says are really uh, quite, quite extraordinary. Uh, they're amazing. I'll give you one example, which... Uh, uh, it sits there in the confessions as one of those startling things to hear someone say. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Gray wants to get him to admit that the rebellion was a failure and that he was wrong. Mm. Okay, and there, you know, he's he knows he's going to be executed. I mean, he's in the most extreme circumstances of his life in that period. And when Gray sort of pushes him in that that direction, and Gray says, "Don't you believe yourself mistaken now?" And, and uh, you know, Turner thought that God was on his side and God was behind the rebellion to start with, okay? And Gray wants him to say, I was wrong, you know. Uh, but what he says was, uh, as, and he knows he's going to be executed, what he says instead is, was not Christ crucified? Hmm. Whoa. Wow. That is the most unbelievable thing hmm. for, to say. It just shows you the strength that he had from his religious beliefs and he doesn't back away even in being put to death. Yeah. Yeah. It's also fascinating in the way in which it circles back to the other conversation about honor, humiliation and recognition that 
obviously in the very process in which Brown is put to death in the end, there's a huge amount of recognition of his humanity and the very sort of taking seriously of what was perceived as his act of evil and insubordination, right? I mean, an animal can't do that. Yeah. No, uh, this is extraordinary because I don't think, the same thing does not happen with Turner for sure, and you can see the way they treat his body. Uh, And uh, there are some, you know, mixed reactions to uh, the confessions of Nat Turner. Some people say Turner couldn't have spoken that way. He has a kind of eloquence, um, the way he's presented. And there was criticism of Gray for having sort of uh, given him a voice which is too intelligent. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, this is often in, in reading... Uh, the, the words of African Americans as they're filtered through whites, you get this kind of thing happening over and over again. You know, here's a specific example of this. You know, during the New Deal, when uh, they were making work for historians and the federal government hired historians to interview people who had been enslaved and who um, uh, were still alive in during the 1930s, and those records are extraordinary records. They're, they're, they're records of the an amazing set of, of, of memories. But, but when it, it was a lot of whites uh, copied down those words and published those words. And what happens is they put in spelling errors, even if the word is mispronounced, is not, doesn't change the pronunciation. Mm-hmm. They add spelling errors to the word so that you, when you look at it on the page, it looks as if there's someone who's semi-literate who's mm-hmm. speaking. But when you have someone like... Uh, you know, Frederick Douglass, who comes out of enslavement, and we know what his voice is like, and you can see how it's possible to be enslaved and be eloquent and learned and overcome the obstacles of enslavement. That's an extraordinary thing. Matt Turner, I think, is the same way, and uh, easy to misunderstand him if, if you only look at it through white eyes. That's, that's really great. I can't, I, as I told you, I can't wait to, to read this book. Um, I think uh, I think it's probably a, a good place for us to uh, pause and uh, wrap it up. And I know that you and I will continue having these conversations. So I wanted to say a big thank you for, for uh, talking to our podcast. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you as always. And uh, let's continue the conversation. Okay, I'll pause the recording here.